0: Welcome and thank you for tuning in to the Graceland Church Podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus and love our neighbor for the good of the city. It's good to have Calvin here leading worship with us for the first time ever. Calvin, we're honored to worship with you. And it's good to have James back who's new in our mix and worship team. Thank you. You know, we had a lot of people um, out sick this week. Have you guys noticed people have been getting sick? So just I want to shout out to our team for hustling behind the scenes to make services happen and taking care of kids and changing things last minute. Do you guys know we have a team here that loves you very much and works hard uh, to make all this possible? So just give a hand to our team real quick. They're all around, they're over with the kids. My name's Nathan Kohler. honored to be our lead pastor here. We're so glad you guys are here and believe there's a reason you're here. And before I get into the message today, I just wanna highlight something we're doing tonight. Are there any men in the room? All right, that was a little sad. Stephen, that was good. The rest of you, I'm not sure. But tonight we have something called Brotherhood. This is just tonight. It's not like an every Sunday thing. So if you're a man and you're even connected to our church a little bit, I want to personally invite you and challenge you to make it. It's just an hour and a half It's at Just Love Coffee Cafe in Spring Hill, Tennessee, just a few minutes from here. The coffee shop will be closed, but they're opening it just for us. Their staff will be there, and they're gonna provide some food for us, bring some money, it's not free, we're gonna bless them by buying food. In fact, they made a special menu just for us, look at that, Brotherhood, Men Following Jesus with our logo on it. I know you can't read those things, but I just wanted to tell you that's our menu, and bring 10 or 20 bucks, and they have like really good waffle sandwiches, and desserts, and all kinds of stuff. But I hope you men can make it. It is about following Jesus and growing in our discipleship before the Lord. And we're setting vision for the next year, 2023, together. And I'm asking you guys to commit with me Growing spiritually. Here's a little framework we're going to use. I'm not going to teach it now, but this is something I use in my own life for my own discipleship that some mentors have taught me. And I'm going to take all of you guys through it tonight as part of our hang time. So you can let me know if you're going to be there so I can give them an accurate count. Um, But even if you don't get to let me out, just show up anyway. We had a few people, uh, men who are hardcore enough that they misread the flyer and showed up this morning at 7 a.m. at Just Love Coffee. I got texts from a few guys in our church being like, hey, we on? I'm like, what are you talking about? And they said, just love coffee. And I said, it's tonight. Here's the flyer. And, but they're the Marines in our midst. They're hardcore. And I said, they're, they're going to come back and, and hang out with us. We're in this series through the gospel of John. And we're going to pick up today in John 12, verse 12. How many of you guys watched the Titans beat the Green Bay Packers on Thursday night? Anybody wow. with me? That was fun. This is my son's football. It was a gift from one of his uncles that has the Titans logo on it. And we were watching the game together, me and Clay. He's four years old. He's my youngest and my only boy. And my girls love watching uh, with us too, but this time it was just me and Clay at this particular moment. And he would grab this football, or one of his many footballs, and in the living room, as the Titans are setting up to make their play, he would say, Dad, that's us, right? And be like, yeah, that's us right there, the Titans. And he would set up as if he's playing, and when they say hike, he goes back like he's the quarterback throws it, and then it lands, and he runs over, pretends to catch it, and then he immediately looks to me as, was it a good play, Dad? And if I'm like, yeah, that was good. He goes, yeah, and we high-five, and we cheer, and he jumps on me as if every play is a touchdown. And he really mimics those players, and he is living his best life right now because he feels like he's out on the field with those guys playing, even though he's about this tall, and you can carry him like a football still, basically, but it really struck me as we were doing that, that it's such a beautiful picture of how we are actually called to, to behold Jesus and behold this living God and mimic him. Like he's actually calling plays for us. He's calling, and he's showing us the saints of old and saying, This is how to live in the world. And we get to be like clay, mimicking him. And so today, I want to share a message with you about following Jesus' example. He's actually exemplifying something for us that helps us make sense of how to live in this world. And instead of reading the whole text up front like I normally do in this series, we're just gonna go through each section at a time for the sake of time. So picking up in John 12, verse 12, it says this. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Let's pause there as I give you some context. This is just five days now before the Passover festival, when over 2 million people would descend upon Jerusalem. They actually believe it was about 2.5 million. And so it is a festival where they, they would take a lamb, they would make sure it was a pure lamb and didn't have flaws, and they would sacrifice it ceremonially, representatively, and place the blood over their door, which is what they would do in the Old Testament at the time of the Passover when he was calling the people of Israel out of Egypt. So they're remembering that miracle and remembering how the, the symbolism of the blood of the lamb would cause the, the, the death and sickness and brokenness to pass over them, hence the Passover. And so that's what's happening. And they're only five days away from that festival. And we also know, because we know what's going to happen later, so we're looking back in hindsight, this is just five days before Jesus gives his life for us on the cross. And so Jesus understands this is his last week of earthly ministry before his death, burial, and resurrection. And he chooses on this exact same day when the people of Israel would choose their lamb, it's not by accident that he presents himself as the fulfillment of that, as the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And looks what happens, look what happens in verse 13. They took palm branches and they, they went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. So just picture him coming down the hill into Jerusalem, the biggest city around, 2.5 million people crowding in all along the streets, shouting out to Jesus, Hosanna, which means save us. Save us now, Jesus, believing he's the Messiah. And number one in your notes is they were rightly worshiping Jesus and crying out for salvation. And that's where we all start. We just cry out to God. It's the right decision to make. We don't even fully understand what we're saying, but we know we are in need. It's like the chorus of that song. Oh, God, I need you. That's like what they were doing. And then in verse 14, it says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So he's fulfilling a prophecy that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem in this triumphal entry on a donkey. And what that symbolizes is he is entering in the posture of peace. And let's be reminded, number two in your notes, Jesus is the savior of the world, the spotless lamb, the prince of peace. That's why it's right that they were calling on his name, crying out to him. And it's important to note that he was the spotless lamb. So just like the people of Israel were inspecting the lambs that they collected for the sacrifice, Jesus is tested over these next weeks. He's he's examined by the people. There's all kinds of controversy about who he is. And as a bit of foreshadowing and a bit of a spoiler alert, at the end of this, Pilate, one of the Roman leaders, stands before the people and says, I've looked at this Jesus, and he's without fault. He's the spotless lamb. The people still crucify him, which we're going to talk about in the coming weeks. But Jesus could not take away our sin and bear it upon his shoulders if he was not sinless. So he's the spotless lamb. He's the prince of peace. And in verse 41, I'm sorry, I want to, I want to pull back to Luke 19, 41 to help us understand something else that was happening. As he was approaching Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. So we get this picture of Jesus coming in on this triumphal entry, but also weeping over the city. So as people are praising him as the Savior and calling on his name, he understands that while that's a good thing, there's something much deeper that he wants to do. And he understands that he is about to be rejected by the people and give his life on the cross. And there's a principle here, and it's number three. It is good to worship Jesus physically, to call out, to raise our hands, to come to places like this, but there's something deeper that he wants for you. There's something he is trying to get at in our inner life, in our hearts. And in verse 16, it says that his disciples did not understand all this. They didn't get this picture of the triumphal entry and everything he was talking about with this donkey. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. So this is so encouraging to me, and I don't know if it is to you, but even the disciples miss the magnitude and meaning of what was happening in this moment. And I love all these parts of the Gospels where it says the disciples did not understand or the disciples did something wrong and Jesus had to correct them. Because I don't know about you, but a lot of times I get things wrong. Anybody with me? And look at this, number four, the disciples were with Jesus in person and often didn't understand what he was doing. So if they were with him in person, how should we not expect the same reality to be true for us? You see, I work with a lot of people pastorally and oftentimes in our lives, even when we're trying to read and understand scripture, people will read something and maybe it's an obscure passage and they'll walk away thinking, I have no idea what that's talking about. And you know what, that's okay. The disciples don't always know what Jesus is up to, and even more so in our own lives. We don't fully understand everything God is doing in our lives, and if that's the case, we're in really good company. So i want to flip this on its head for you. Rather than being worried about the fact that you don't understand anything, on this week leading up to Thanksgiving, I want to challenge you with this, number five. Give thanks that God is doing things beyond what you currently understand. So do the exact opposite of worrying about it. Just say, oh my goodness, I thank you that you are God and I am, new, and I am not God, and I'm going to worship you in the midst of it, though I have no clue what you're doing in this particular moment. What a beautiful gift. Give thanks. My dad uh, taught me often growing up, um, I don't know if he used these words, but to be comfortable in the mystery of God comfortable in the things we don't understand, comfortable with the fact that we don't have to have all our I's dotted and T's crossed perfectly. We can be okay saying, I don't know, but God knows. I don't trust myself. I trust God. I don't hang my hopes on myself. I hang my hopes on God. This is called trust. And then in verse 17, it says, the crowd... That was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, which just happened before this. They continued to spread the word about that miracle. And so many people, because they had heard that he had performed the sign, went out to meet him. So probably even more than the normal Passover festival, because there's a stirring that this Jesus is healing people. And then the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the day, who were threatened by Jesus, said, see This is getting us over because they were trying to stop him at this point. And they said, look how the whole world has gone after him. They're like throwing their hands up. We don't know what to do because they're already actively looking for ways to kill him. And by the way, when you study this time in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas, they were experiencing um, extreme political unrest, extreme division, all kinds of cultural wars, all kinds of economic worries and fears, all kinds of violence. And in the middle of all that is the triumphal entry of the Prince of Peace and the one who gives his life for us. And I just think it's good to remember that that is something God is used to and what's happening in our world right now and in our country right now and in many of our own hearts right now is not beyond the scope of what God can handle. Are you tracking with me on that? Like we can get so up in arms, sometimes because we take in a little bit too much of like um, the nightly news or the, the Twitter feed or whatever it else might be. We have to be really careful that we understand God has been through all kinds of things like this before and he holds his bride tightly in his hand and his word never comes back void and we are not called to live in fear and we are not called to live in a posture of anxiety but of peace. So here the prince of peace comes. And in the midst of this, in verse 20, it says there were some Greeks who went up to worship at the festival. So these are some outsiders, if you will. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. They found one of the disciples. They said, we would like to see Jesus. So they were seekers. I love this. And Philip went to Andrew And Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. It's like these outsiders came and find one of the the lowly to try to get up to Jesus. And they said, we would like to see this Jesus. And I love this because Jesus always answers honest seekers. It's like as soon as your heart starts to posture yourself towards seeking Jesus, even if you don't know what in the world you're doing or what in the world to pray or understand anything about scripture, he will begin to respond to your seeking. Isn't that great news? And we don't graduate from being seekers, right? Uh, You you can go to have every Bible degree. You could do all these wonderful things. and, And on your deathbed, you're still gonna have the heart that says, God, I am seeking you. I wanna know you. We never graduate from our followership of Jesus and from seeking to know him. And that's what they're doing here. And he begins to respond to them. Verse 23, he says, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. That's the first time he said that. Leading up to this point, Jesus over and over again would say, my time has not yet come, including to his own mom. When she was trying to get him to do a miracle at the wedding, he said, woman, my time has not yet come. I don't talk to my mom like that, but Jesus did that. He said, woman. If I ever call my mom woman, it's going downhill from there. Jesus, though, somehow he was sinless, even though he did that. But he said to her, my time is not yet come. And over and over again, leading up to this moment, he kept on saying things like, it's not the time. Here for the first time, when these Greeks are seeking him, he says, now my time has come to be glorified. And he goes into something here that is so shocking. It's so surprising. It's so counterintuitive because he begins to show us that all these praises are great and the big moments, these highs are wonderful, but the path to glory is actually the path to death. And it's, here he goes in verse 24, very truly I tell you, Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. He's talking about himself there, first of all. He's saying, I'm about to give my life. And if I wasn't going to do that, it would just end with me. But since I'm going to give my life, I'm going to produce many seeds off of this sacrifice. Then he starts to make it personal in verse 25. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So now he's beginning to let us know that following him is about following him to death if we want to know his life. And it's the upside down kingdom of God. Now, a bit of clarification when he uses the word hate there. There's a few other times um, that Jesus used the, the, the uh, literary tool of comparison. There's another scripture where it says, unless you hate your earthly family and follow after me, you have no part with me. And scholars believe, and I completely believe, it's, it's using the power of comparison that the love for God and the wholeheartedness to him is so overwhelmingly more powerful that this other love can almost be referred to like a hate. And then he also, uh, there's a scholar named Paul Boutillier who says this, It's important to note that it says anyone who hates their life in this world. So he's calling us to reject the dominance and control of the life we live in this world, meaning the life lived under the control of the sinful nature that part of us that is completely self-centered, that as we follow Jesus, we begin to run from that self-focus and that self-serving mindset. He's saying, and I'm sure you guys can relate to this, as you grow to know Jesus and get glimpses of his holiness and glimpses of perfect love, you look back on your selfishness and you're like, I don't want any part of that. Anybody with me? That's what he's referring to. So It's not that you get everything perfect and now you have eternal life. It's that you are so frustrated with the tension between the old and the new that it's an indicator that you are stepping into that eternal life right now. Are you tracking with me on that? Powerful statement. Jesus also says in Matthew 16, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And the principle is so powerful and it's this, number six, it is in releasing that we find everything. Makes no sense. I'm going to quote my dad again. You're just getting a glimpse into what I normally do. I just talk about everything he taught me my whole life. My mom too, but I'm, I'm saying stuff my dad told me right now. He told me as soon as I became a young adult, and he's told me a hundred times, times since then, that really all of life is learning to let go. And for a believer, that's a posture of worship. You know, if you imagine taking a clenched fist and living life like this, to find everything is to release all of this and say, this is all yours, Lord. That's what it means to go down into our death. I'm not even mine. This is all yours. That's why we lift our hands. We open our palms. Elizabeth Elliot said, if my life is surrendered to God, all is well. Let me not grab it back as though it were in peril in his hand, but would be safer in mine. In other words, learn how to stay surrendered. This is not like a one time thing, this is a daily process. Sometimes for me, it's a hundred times a day process. Anybody with me? Like you, you slip into some kind of thing you're frustrated about, and you're like, oh, that's right, I'm surrendered today. Lord, I love you, I worship you. Hannah uh, Wital Smith said, if we will only surrender ourselves utterly to the Lord, And we'll trust him perfectly, we shall find our souls mounting up, mounting up with wings as eagles to the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, where earthly annoyances or sorrows have no power to disturb us. Have you ever noticed that when you're really released to the Lord, you can't be bothered. You're free. You're secure in Him. There's nothing that can enter and disturb the power of the peace of God in you. It's only when we step out of that that we start getting all hot and bothered about everything in life. And then he just says it very plainly in verse 26. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. So when we were singing, I just want to be where you are. There's there's nothing like your love. We're talking about going down into our death, into a total surrender before God over and over again. Because there is where we find perfect love. He says, my father will honor the one who serves me. And then we're gonna close with this. Jesus gives us a glimpse into his internal wrestling match, which this is just amazing to me. I'm so glad Jesus does this. He says in verse 27, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? So he's just saying this for our benefit. He's like, guys, listen, I'm calling you to give your lives to the point of death, and in doing that, you're gonna find true life. And I know this is not easy, and he's now modeling for us My soul is troubled, so what will I do when my soul is troubled? And we can ask ourselves, what will we do when our soul is troubled? And he gives some options here. Will I say, Father, save me from this hour? In other words, Father, I'm going to resist this, or Father, I'm going to run from this? And then he declares, no, it was for this reason I came to this hour. And then he models true worship, Father, glorify your name, as he just surrenders. Worship is surrender. And Jesus teaches us the depths of worship by exemplifying surrender. That's number seven in your notes. He could have complained about what his father asked him to do. He could have resisted, but rather he says, no, this is why I'm here. Father, I worship you. And our application is this. Let your physical worship be the overflow of your joyfully surrendered heart. So it's great that we sing and raise our hands, and we should do it and do it more, but God wants to get down into our heart. That is all overflow of a surrendered life, joyfully, continuously returning back to the Lord and bringing all the anguish, all the problems to him. The worship team is gonna come up as I share a closing story and a little bit of application. This releasing looks different at different stages of life. So some of you guys have walked with the Lord for decades and therefore this is like the hundredth time or 10,000th time you've surrendered. By the way, some of our kids are coming in uh, because we're going to get ready to do some baptisms. So kids, you can just all take a seat right here as we finish up the message and we're going to have an amazing celebration here in just a minute. So I did a few little case studies and bear with me, church, because I think this is an important piece to get. When Paul met Jesus, he was being transformed from Saul to Paul and his life had to completely change. In other words, his surrender in that moment, right now I'm competing with these children. Why am I even talking? What am I thinking? This message is over. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. But I I do wanna share this because I believe it's very important. In Paul's case, when he met Jesus for the first time, his surrender looked like an absolutely 180 in all of his life. He had to change careers, he had to change friends, He had to change everything he was doing. And for some of you, you're at that sort of place. That's where you're first becoming a follower of Jesus. And God may be calling you to letting go of things that are that extreme. There may be relationships that need to end. There may be career paths that change, like a total 180 transformation. But then if we look at the life of Peter, Peter had been walking with Jesus for years. And when Jesus went to the cross, Peter failed epically because he was terrified. He denounced Jesus three times. And then after Jesus rose from the grave, in the middle of Peter's failure, Jesus pursued him. And then Peter was found by Jesus. And Jesus said, Peter, do you still love me? Peter says, yes. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. And he did that three times. And so that releasing and that surrender looked like just accepting the words of Jesus again in the midst of his failure because he could have run at that moment. He could have just been so overwhelmed with shame, but he was about to step into his assignment to be the rock upon which Jesus builds the whole church. So some of you guys might just be reeling in failure, but I'm telling you, Jesus pursues you in your failure. And he wants to have a moment with you where he reminds you that you are his, and this is part of the releasing. You have to release and surrender your own failure. And then look at Mary, who we looked at last week. Mary was disappointed in Jesus because he didn't heal her brother days she thought her brother was dead forever she was probably angry she was filled with anxiety fear and pain and then her restoration moment came after Jesus did heal Lazarus and she ended up at the feet of Jesus worshiping pouring out this costly perfume that was a restoration moment for Mary and some of us the releasing just looks like taking that thing that's causing us so much anxiety and bringing it back to the feet of Jesus taking that pain that we don't know what to do with and bringing it back to the feet of Jesus. Taking that anger, even anger at God, back to the feet of Jesus. Are you guys tracking with me on this? And then to top it all off, this is how amazing it is. Just like Clay, when he's watching the Titans play these professional athletes, he feels like he's in the game. He's celebrating when he's throwing the ball in our living room as if he just scored a touchdown. And I'm celebrating with him as if he just did it too. And for Peter, for Paul, for Mary, for any of us here, when we are talking about exemplifying Jesus, yes, we have to surrender, but you know who actually scores the touchdown? It's Jesus. You know who actually was sinless and gave us a perfect surrender and died on the cross for us and overcame sin, death, and the grave? Jesus. And we, just like Clay, get to just watch it and say, I'm in. <laughs> We get to be like, I'm a part of that. Isn't that crazy? It's unbelievable. It will make me so emotional to start thinking about it because we so often live like we're not in his victory, but he's given it to us. He has called us into it. You can be just like Clay and say, I am going to follow you and you should celebrate like you are fully on the team because this is what the gospel is. And so what I want to do is invite you to... uh, a surrender, to worship, to release, and in releasing, once again, find everything. Standing on your word. Oh, God, my God, I need you. Oh, God, my God, I need you now. How I need you now. Say you're the rock of ages. Oh, rock, oh, rock. Standing on your faithfulness, on your faithfulness. Oh, God, we thank you, Lord. We For new life. We thank you for second chances. We thank you, Lord, uh, for the obedience today that was followed through in both Marie and Nessa, Lord, and all those that have poured into them. God, we ask you to just guide them all the days of their life, and we're so thankful we got to witness that today. Lord, we love you so much, Jesus. I'm going to pray this benediction over you today and then we'll be dismissed. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen. Have a great week, family. We love you so much.